Previously on Caustic Soda. This battle took like 30 minutes. They killed 2,000 people. It's all during the golden hour. <laughs> oh, it must have been the most beautiful massacre yeah. ever. We Poor will get man. all of those buckets and bring them back. <laughs> Didn't happen. Heads inside of them. Oh. Mm -hmm. And now the Wormslow fetish community will put on their performance. <laughs> we couldn't find a proper mask this year, so we just used a stripper pole. <laughs> and now, the conclusion. Eighteen ninety-six, the Anglo-Zanzibar War. Zanzibar. Yeah, it's a, a great chocolate bar. They really wanted more of them, and they were being produced outside of their borders. So they started a war to get them. They just Zanzibars. wanted bars. They just wanted to zanz it up. That's right. On August twenty-fifth, eighteen ninety-six, the Sultan of Zanzibar, Hamad bin Tawani, unexpectedly died. Hmm. Some suspected that he'd been poisoned. I did. For many years, Zanzibar, an island off the east coast of Africa, had been fought over by European powers, particularly right. Germany and England, and mm. Bin Tawani had been a consistent supporter of the British, granting London a number of land concessions and trade rights. Oh. One of the provisions in the treaty between England and Zanzibar gave the British consulate the right of approval over any person who might ascend to the mm. Sultan's throne. However, after Bin Tawani's death, his nephew Khalid Bin Bargash, known for his anti-British views, claimed the throne and refused to seek approval from the British. Huh. Huh. Bin Bargash barricaded himself in the Sultan's palace with 2,800 troops, Ooh. two machine guns, <laughs> a 17th century bronze cannon. Oh. It feels like it's more for show than yeah, like effective cannonness. <laughs> and two 12-pounder artillery guns. In response, the British consul sent a warning. If Bin Bargash did not surrender by 9 a.m. on August 27th, the British would declare war and attack. The British surrounded the palace with 900 Zanzibari troops under English command, five Royal Navy ships in the nearby harbor, and 150 Royal Marines. At 9.02 a.m., the British opened fire. After first sinking the only ship in the Zanzibar Navy, <laughs> the old wooden schooner Glasgow, uh -huh. uh, we've actually got a picture of the sunken Glasgow. You can actually still see its mast sticking above the water. Oh, nice. There you go. There's the mast of the Glasgow right there in the middle of the harbor. The British turned their naval guns onto the palace, quickly knocking out the Zanzibari artillery and reducing most of the harem building to rubble. What did the poor harem girls do to anybody? Nothing. You think they were shooting at the harem on, on purpose? Nothing bad, I hope. <laughs> you, you think they were shooting at the harem on purpose? They kind of like wanted to knock one of the walls down so they might see some leg or oh, something? <laughs> at 9.40, Bin Bagash fled to the nearby German consulate and fire was ceased. About 500 palace guards were killed by the bombardment. No pro- British forces were killed. The war lasted 38 minutes, making it the shortest war in history. Nice. Uh, although the majority of the Zanzibari townspeople sided with the British, the town's Indian quarter suffered from opportunistic looting, and around 20 inhabitants lost their lives in the chaos. Oh, really? The harem, lighthouse, and palace were demolished as the bombardment had left them unsafe. The palace site became a garden, while a new palace was erected on the site of the harem. The wreck of the Glasgow remained in the harbor where the shallow waters ensured her mass would remain visible for years. It was eventually broken up for scrap in 1912, 16 years later. Wow. The British punished Khalid supporters by forcing them to pay reparations to cover the cost of the <laughs> shells fired. <laughs> hey, we pay us for the bullets we used to shoot you with. Yes, that is nice. exactly what they made them do. And, uh, and, the, and any of the damages caused in the looting. Uh, okay. which amounted to, totally to 300,000 rupees. Uh, the British then appointed Hamud bin Muhammad as the sultan who ruled Zanzibar as a client state for the next right. 70 years. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> sure. I guess if Zanzibar had a, a branded chocolate bar, the British now owned all of them. That is for sure. Oh yeah, you must pay us restitution in delicious confectionery sweets. Bars, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, if you were in charge of the British Navy, that would have satisfied you. Yep. Yep. Give me your chocolate bars. <laughs> 1900, The War of the Golden Stool. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. This is what happens when you have too much... Ye- what is yep. this? <laughs> Goldschlager. Goldschlager. That's right. Goldschlager, and then you have to go to the bathroom. Yeah, please, be poop, please be about poop. Please be about poop. Please be about poop. Please be about poop. When the Ashanti began rebelling against British rule... Oh, and by this we mean the, uh, the, the young African-American soul singer. Who like who sang all those hooks on all those Ja Rule songs? I, Outside my field of I expertise. Love the look on Torrance's face right now. She was the lead actor in Muppets: Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I have also not seen what. Yeah. I was the third assistant director on that movie, and for that alone, I figured you would have seen it. <laughs> oh, so sorry. My apologies. So, crazy enough, I've actually done more than one movie with Ashanti. Oh. She was also uh, part of the ensemble cast of the horrible movie, John Tucker Must Die. Okay. And, okay. you know, I really kind of wished I'd died while I'd been making that movie. So what is a an Ashanti that is not a singer? I don't know. You tell me. Oh. Uh, that is an ethnic people from the Ashanti region. Okay. Uh, of of the Kingdom of Ashanti in South Ghana. Okay. Sir Frederick Mitchell Hodgson, mm-hmm. uh, the British governor, went to meet them to defuse the situation. He demanded that they turn over the golden stool, the throne, and the symbol of Ashanti sovereignty. Oh, so not poop. Okay. Okay. All right. Do we have a picture of this? Yes, we do. Oh, well, definitely check out the golden stool. Oh, my God. That looks crazy. Oh, that is kind of a crazy. It, that's, that is not a stool. That is a chair. That is a full chair. Yep. Yeah. With I like quite a, call it a jet pack attached to it. Yeah. It looks like. Kind yeah, of yeah. It's very Flash Gordon. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Ming the Merciless would be down with this. Do those light up? Those look like light bulbs. <laughs> ding, 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 well, ding, ding, since ding, it was ding, 1900 ding. and it's the seat of power for the Shanty people, I'm guessing. Yes, it's got to be because that would be like magic. Yes, that's why they worship it so Nobody much. Nobody would realize how ridiculous it is to just screw light bulbs into a chair <laughs> because it's, it's 1900. You're uh, fine. He stated, hmm. Sir Frederick Mitchell Hodgson. Mm-hmm. Then there is the matter of the golden stool of Ashanti. Mm-hmm. The queen is entitled to the stool. She must receive it. Oh, where is the golden stool? <laughs> I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this ordinary chair? Oh, he was... What? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kumasi to Kumasi to bring the golden stool for me to sit upon with my buttocks? Oh, he didn't say the no, buttocks part. Yeah, right. However, you... However... You may be quite sure that though the government has not received the golden stool at its, at its hands, it will rule over you with the same impartiality and fairness as if you had produced it. So I'm outraged, but it's fine. I'm outraged, <laughs> okay. nothing bad will happen. So he's he sent out to defuse the situation of the Ashanti kind of railing against British colonialism. And his tactic <laughs> yeah. is, where's, where's the fucking stool? Is to demand their throne so that he may sit upon it and that they will rule over them fairly in the meantime, yeah. in spite of not being allowed to sit on the stool. 
Outraged by, his disres- by the disrespect shown to their heritage and sovereignty, a council of Ashanti chiefs immediately met to discuss how best to oppose British colonialism. Yeah, so he didn't mm-hmm. defuse the situation. He did the exact opposite <laughs> of defusing the situation. Hey, go defuse that fire. More wood coming up. Maybe when the queen called and said, hey, go defuse that situation, he went confused. He thought she said there was like oh. a, there was a crackle in the line. <laughs> yeah. And he go and confuse or, the situation. <laughs> or he, she wrote him a letter. She wrote him a letter. Oh, there's and like he's, a tea stain. He, he or or he had he didn't have the right prescription right. on his glasses. Right. And he went. Mm, uh, he's too proud to ask somebody to read it to him. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the Queen Mother would want me to demand the golden stool. When the chiefs could not agree on a course of action, the Queen Mother Ya Asawanta addressed mm-hmm. the meeting. Uh, she will sound like Morgan Freeman. Oh. All right. No European could have dared speak to the chiefs of Asante in the way the governor spoke to you this morning. Is it true that the brave of Asante is no more? I cannot believe it. It cannot be. I must say this. If you, the men of Asante, will not go forward, then we will. We, the women, will. Oh, wow. I shall call upon my fellow women. We will fight. We will fight till the last of us falls in the battlefields. Wow. Wow. She is calling them out. Ooh, I like this lady. This, you know, Morgan Freeman proxy. <laughs> yeah. The speech so moved the chiefs that they swore to fight the British and began by cutting telegraph wires and blocking routes to Kumasi, mm-hmm. where the British had a fort. For several months, the Ashanti kept the British pinned down, and the English had to call upon 1,400 troops for reinforcements. All right. The following year, the British arrested numerous chiefs, including Ya Asawanta, mm-hmm. and exiled them to the Seychelles. Okay. Is that how it's pronounced? I think so. Or, or, or did they make them live in seashells? They made them live, live in, inside, in... like a giant hermit crab uh, shell. <laughs> say chili, say chellies, say chellies, say chellies. I think, I think seashells is like now we're like Spaniards say, going vacation. Well, I know that seashells, seashells by the seashore. seashore. Of course, yeah, because you can't lay on the beach for an hour without being hassled. Yeah, they are a tiny island. They have a lot of seashore. Yeah, not allowing any of them to return for twenty-five years. Oh. Yeah, Asantoa died in 1923, far from her homeland. The war cost the British and their allies 1,007 fatalities, while Ashanti casualties were estimated to be around 2,000. About twice. Right. The British never did capture the golden stool. Oh, so uh, they lost the battle, but they won the stool victory? It was hidden. It was hidden deep in the forests. They painted oh, okay. it silver. That <laughs> <laughs> no, was just a silver stool. Another gambit. Deep in the forest for the duration of the war, the British continued to seek it until 1920 when it was accidentally uncovered by a team of laborers. What? They took the golden ornaments light that adorned bulbs. the stool, which made it powerless in the eyes of the shanty. Because of light course. bulbs are, yeah, no, yeah, no power. Yeah. An Ashanti court sentenced the laborers to death for their desecration, but British officials intervened and arranged for their exile instead. Got it. So they found a golden stool in the forest. Take, ooh, let's take all the gold off. (laughs) (laughs) That is kind of what you do when you find golden things, isn't it? You take some golden parts. Man, I don't know. Take the whole stool? Maybe it's heavy. Uh, like, oh, well, well, I guess because they had to divide it all up between the, the, all the labels. Yeah, you can't just like saw a stool in quarters and then, uh, you Especially know. Especially if it's golden. Yeah, so uh, it's not really going to. Desecrate it, desecrate it. Yeah, you know, just uh, 
take all the gold off, melt it down, do what you do when you're a desecrator. <laughs> you, this is what, this is what the job of a desecrator is to do. That's right. Look, I'm, honey, I'm a desecrator. Mm-hmm. I desecrate. This yes. is what I have to do. That's right. It's in my blood. My father was a desecrator. <laughs> His father was a desecrator. Oh, imagine though if they like, uh, instead of letting the Ashanti execute them, they uh, they exiled them. Imagine if they exiled them to the Seychelles as well, where the other oh. Ashanti were. Oh, oh that would have been an awkward conversation. <laughs> I've been uh, been uh, exiled here, but I got all this cool gold I found in this golden stool. <laughs> I guess if they didn't, so I wonder if they did they keep the gold who has the gold where's the gold now yeah who knows? did it get sure, put back on the throne because no i'm sure the gold got the reason that they got discovered is because they like you know yeah took it to a you know an ashanti a gone a ghananese version pawn shop yeah whatever they had at the time so, jesus this is of the golden stool guys yeah and that's called, how word got out it's I'm like well, we found this golden stool all this sweet gold on it give me money right yeah. Yeah. you wait here in this room yeah we'll go get your money yeah that's right i got a short one here 1925 the war of the stray dog Okay. All right. All right. So a dog is wandering along a border and it accidentally steps on a gun. It's the littlest hobo. Yeah. Yeah. It's the littlest hobo except for accidental homicide. (laughs) I would watch that episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The biggest homicide. Yeah. It would be the littlest hobo where taught a morality play about weapon safety. Maybe Uh. tomorrow we'll start a little war. (laughs) Do Americans even know what we're talking about when we say Lilith's Elbow? I think it was in a lot, like it was played a lot in America. It's just like a cheap ass show. Uh, yeah, it, it feels like one of those shows that had a surprising amount of, uh, you know, foreign territories yeah. covered off. I, I'll find like a trailer or something, put it up in the show notes. I'm, I'm sure there is one. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, the Littlest Hobo is basically Canada's version of Lassie. Yeah. Right. It is a dog that wanders from town to town and helps people out. Yeah. <laughs> ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous in one of the most bizarre conflicts of the 20th century a dog inadvertently triggered an international crisis yeah all right the incident was the culmination of a long period of hostility between greece and bulgaria which had been at odds since the second balkan war in the 1910s and it uh, the dog uh, walked up and peed on somebody's leg oh no humped his leg humped a leg leg humper dog was far less guilty than that oh Tensions finally boiled over in October 1925 when a Greek soldier was shot after allegedly crossing the border into Bulgaria while Mm. chasing after his runaway dog. Allegedly. Allegedly. Now, I am not a dog lover. Mm -hmm. But you are a dog lover. (laughs) So I don't know if I would chase uh, my dog into into enemy territory. Well, you don't want him to go there. Right. But if he's going there and he's gotten away from me... Maybe I should have leashed him up better. I agree. Yeah. Right. Well, Joe, here's the big question. Did you run after your dog into enemy territory? I pro- you know, I probably would, actually. All right. I'd probably have my we- hands in the air. I'd be- do it wisely, but they would shoot me anyway. Torn, we now know how to get rid of Joe. My dog is dumb and going deaf now, mm-hmm. so he wouldn't even hear me calling for him. I might call to them, hey, get my dog, but they'd just shoot him. I feel That's like terrible. Canada's biggest enemy is Canadians. All we need is a war zone? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know what to do. Torn, all we need is a war zone. All right. And then just like, you know, throw a... Throw, uh, what, what is, what is, throw uh, milk what bone? is Loki like? Yeah. Milk throw, bone? Throw milk bone about 20 feet into enemy territory. Literally any food, actually. Yeah. <laughs> He'll just go after... Food? Yeah. Or anything he might think might be food. Good times. The shooting became a rallying cry for the Greeks, who soon after invaded Bulgaria and occupied several villages. Okay. All right. They were even set to commence shelling the city of Petrik when the League of Nations finally intervened and condemned the attack. Oh, okay. I said, just, yeah. just, uh, just let the dog go yeah. home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
An international committee later negotiated a ceasefire between the two nations, but not before the misunderstanding had resulted in the deaths of some 50 people. All right. The dog was put on trial. Uh, it was a kangaroo court. <laughs> of course it was. The kangaroo hit the can... dog in its pouch. I find it curious that they call this a misunderstanding because I think there was a perfect understanding. There was a Greek guy in Bulgarian territory and they shot him. It's not a misunderstanding at all. They knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. yeah. Was the, uh, <laughs> the dog doesn't, you know. It was an invasion of one. <laughs> Precisely. And his dog. And the uh, little dog, too. 1969, the football war. Oh, now is this American football or British football? It is Honduran and El Salvador so football. So probably soccer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. We, we, what we would call soccer. By 1969, tensions were high between nations of Honduras and El Salvador. El Salvador was much smaller than Honduras, uh-huh. but had over twice the population. Yeah. For years, Salvadoran refugees have been streaming across the border into Honduras to escape political repression and economic chaos in their own country. There was much resentment in Honduras about this, uh-huh. and Salvadoran immigrants were often beaten or killed. Oh, tensions ro- from also political repression to to physical politi- murder, political yeah. oppression. Tensions also rose when Honduran authorities passed a land reform law, which gave the right to take any land occupied by illegal Salvadoran mm. immigrants and give it to native-born Hondurans. Okay, mm. so they basically wrote out uh, there were no squatters' rights. Right. Uh, by in June 1969, nationalist sentiments on both sides reached a boiling point when the national soccer teams from the two countries faced each other in the qualifying rounds of the 1970 Ooh, World Cup. How unlucky is that? That like you know this is all going on at the same time, and then you actually have a game. They have to face off. This each, soccer game will be played with explosive balls. <laughs> yeah, they go. This kind of reminds me of that water polo match between the Russians and the Hungarians oh, in the Olympics right. after from our sports injuries episode. After uh, Russia had, in, like, literally weeks after they'd invaded Hungary, they faced each other off in water polo. And it became a bl- the pool was dyed red with blood. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I tell you, there were a lot of cleats up during this match for yep. sure. Uh, the first match on June 6th was won by Honduras. The second on June 15th was won by El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Uh, both matches saw rioting and violent clashes between the two sets of fans. A 16-year-old Salvadoran girl committed suicide what? after Honduras won. What? Oh, and this geez. incident fanned the flames of patriotic fervor, fervor to an absurd level. I can imagine. With the president of El Salvador walking behind her coffin at the funeral wow. procession. okay. So he's not exactly trying to quell. Either he shows up at the funeral so he could walk behind her coffin. Hey, could you fan the flames of war, please? Yes, yeah, you should have actually just been walking behind it with a torch and just lit things on fire, like as you went, right? On June 26th, the day the deciding match was to be held in Mexico City, El Salvador severed diplomatic ties with Honduras, ah. citing the refusal to return seized land to Salvadoran immigrants and punish those who had inflicted violence on them. Okay. On July 14th, the Salvadoran Air Force launched a preemptive strike against Honduran mm. Air Force targets. Mm. The Salvadoran Air Force used refitted World War II airplanes <laughs> as fighters, as well as passenger airplanes with explosives strapped to their sides as oh, bombers. Oh, God, what? <laughs> these, are not, these are not very industrialized oh, nations, obviously. This is why there's an El Salvadorian restaurant in my neighborhood, but there is not a Honduran restaurant right. in my neighborhood. <laughs> After four days of fighting, the Salvadoran army had penetrated deep into Honduras. The Organization of American States called for a ceasefire and met with both parties. After threats of economic sanctions, El Salvador agreed to withdraw, and the soccer war, or 100-hour war, officially ended on August the 2nd. 
Okay. El Salvador suffered about 900 casualties, most of which were civilians. Honduras lost 250 troops and over 2,000 civilians. Wow. Mm. Most of the war was fought on Honduran soil and thousands were made homeless. Mm. Trade between Honduras and El Salvador was greatly disrupted yeah. as the border was closed, which damaged their economies tremendously. Uh. And with their passenger planes with bombs strapped to the side, <laughs> they could really afford to have their economies yeah. impacted really badly. This was, yeah. So. Uh, it wasn't soccer that caused it, but the soccer games were inopportunely timed. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't. Do you think it would have happened if there wasn't the, this soccer game and the suicide of the girl? You know, it might, it might have still happened. It might have still happened. Wow. Like things were escalating for. They already had the bomb strapped to the side of the planes yes. before the soccer yeah, they, matches they, ever the happened. Whole, We've already strapped the bombs to the side of the planes. We got to use this thing now, right? <laughs> how did you? Here's how did they drop the bombs? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Just cut the ropes Saw, tied with. Yeah, maybe. So like the doors the wings were, off. But the doors were open, right? You know, and they're like some guys Guy hanging out. out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Dude, it, it, it seemed like. You can just fly really low and let them <laughs> hit something. Oh, no, you know what you do is you just put the bombs in like buckets and then you just roll the plane. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> I, could go, I could go very badly because one will drop out and the other one will fall on top of the plane. <laughs> Listen, I'm no physicist. <laughs> I'm no physicist. Oh, no, you know you solve that problem. You, you flip end over end. Oh, okay. You, you, go, you flip oh, you, tail to you do, nose. Yeah, you do barrel That's roll. It. Yeah, you do that. Okay, That's okay. how you... Uh... Sold. <laughs> Watch World War Three on pay TV. Watch World War Three on pay TV. If you wanna keep the kids at home, they'll be glued to their sets, watching rockets and jets, blowing up schools and factories, putting an end to the birds and bees. It's worth every penny to tune in and see bum, 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 who wins the Emmy at the ruins of the Academy. Watch World War Three on pay TV before your television melts away. Close-ups on the screen. Not a face you know. Isn't this better than Bishop Sheen? Better than the Late Late Show? Watching the boys from your hometown. Fighting whoever they are. Watching the cities falling down. It's greater than Jack Barr. They're out setting up the cameras now. Though they don't know just where, still they've got to prepare. Merle's there to do his part. Culture, yeah. Ooh, 
There is a horror role-playing game called Weird Wars. Has anybody played it? No. No. I have not either. But maybe from after our friends talking at about Pinnacle it, Entertainment Group. Yep. Mm-hmm. The I think, original. I think release, they might still owe me money for some uh, illustrations I did for them back in the nineties. Oh, really? Maybe. Maybe. Call them out. The original release, Weird War, and the sequel, Weird War Two: Blood on the Rhine, was set during World War Two and utilized a D twenty system. Weird War Two had the PCs playing Allied soldiers, and the Nazis had mutant soldiers. Characters could use haunted vehicles, cast spells, and monsters. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it really is like D&D set during World War II, I guess. Uh, the second release, Tour of Darkness, was set during the Vietnam mm. War Ooh. and employed the Savage Worlds rule set. The third release, also a Savage World uh, rule set, uh, Necropolis, was set in the future on a war-torn planet. So you kind of had like a mix. You had like the D&D style one. Yep. You had the Vietnam War one. And then you had the future distant planet one. So it sounds like it had some range. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Somebody out there, play it and tell us how it was. Yeah, let us know. Comic books can't talk about weird wars without talking about weird war tales. Yes. Mm-hmm. A war comic book title with supernatural overtones published by DC Comics. I think all of us have read at least a couple sure. of Sure. Yeah. One more. What was the what was the run? Like what what kind of uh it was 1971 timeline? 1971 to 1983. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. it's definitely in being a 1973 boy, uh it was right in my wheelhouse. Oh yeah. yeah. You're gonna find it in those packs. You buy the three pack comic, yeah. you can't see what the middle one is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a weird war tales. Uh an anthology series that told war stories with horror, mystery, fantasy, and science fiction elements. The original title ran for twelve years and 124 issues. Each issue was hosted by Death, depicted as a skeleton dressed in a different military uniform. Right. Several issues featured a series of short vignettes titled The Day After Doomsday. Featuring largely doomed characters dealing with various threats and harsh ironies of living in a post-nuclear war apocalyptic landscape. Most dealt with the unexpected results of radiation or infrastructure damage, almost always catching the characters by surprise. So basically it was like uh, post-apocalyptic threats company. <laughs> so many misunderstandings. So many misunderstandings. You know, because of like some radiation-infused mutants and yeah. you know, crumbling buildings and whatnot. I want to see that now. I want to see a post-apocalyptic threats company. That would be great. Isn't that basically um, the end of the the end of the world with um, Will Fort? Oh no, no the, uh, the the TV series you're talking about. Yeah, Last Man on Earth. Last Man oh, on Earth. Man on Earth. I haven't seen it yet. I have kind of like a Three's Company post. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I want to check it out. I just missed its first run before I realized that it was on and it was good. Uh, literature. Mm-hmm. There's a book that somebody brought to my attention. Uh, I want to thank all the researchers, obviously, that helped out, uh, you know, putting stuff over this. And this came from one of them. The War with the Newts. The War with the Newts. Yeah. A 1936 satirical science fiction novel by Czech author Carol Kapek. Ooh. It concerns the discovery in the Pacific of a sea-dwelling race, an intelligent breed of newts, who are initially ex- enslaved and exploited. They acquire human knowledge and rebel, leading to a global war for supremacy. Nice. Nice. And basically, the sense of it is is that the book is kind of a. It was written in 1936, right when nationalist tensions were at their highest mm-hmm. in Europe, and he was in uh, Czechoslovakia, and uh, you know, right on the border with Germany, and getting part of the country annexed. It's all going on at the same time. So it seems like I haven't read the book myself, but it seems like it's basically a critique of nationalism and you know uh um fascism and colonialism and uh, and even race relations in america with newts yeah the final section of the book actually deals with the war who, who are the newts in this who are the newts an allegory for basically humans 
take newts and then they exploit them and oppress them. So the newts are every sort of oppressed people. Okay. Like, for instance, um, one notable satirical point is a German scientist who states that German newts are a superior race and have the right to expand their living states to the uh, expense of inferior breeds of newts. Okay. In the United States, the author pointed out how their social problems uh, are particularly bad. As American mobs deal with any crisis by lynching Negroes as scapegoats, sometimes the newts are shown in the same manner as a white woman claims to have been raped by a newt. Mm. And in spite of the physical impossibility of the act, people believe her and begin to carry out newt lynchings. Newt lynchings. So, Mm. you know, uh, uh, the newts are kind of the allegorical oppressed people. I think that a newt would just basically wait for a human to lay its eggs and then coat the eggs with their sperm oh okay all right but then they find out that the eggs are inside women's bodies and so mm-hmm. they have to get in there and they don't realize the normal path so they mm-hmm. just stab them oh, oh yeah they go with the extra vaginal uh, insemination like those uh mm-hmm. you know what was it bed Tra- traumatic extra vaginal yeah. insemination yeah. yeah exactly so the final section of the book actually deals with the war with the newts after they've been oppressed to the degree where they can't handle it anymore. They rise uh, up. The newts declare their need to destroy portions of the world's continents in order to create new coastlines and oh. expand their living space. Okay. Capic's satirical targets here are mainly nationalism. The British, French, and Germans are all portrayed as irredeemably stubborn and nationalistic. German racial theories and the perceived inefficacy of international diplomacy. The newts all but destroy the Earth's landmass, leaving only a tiny clump of humanity work for them in their factories eventually the newts form separate countries and destroy themselves by committing the same follies as humanity oh they learn too well they learn too well joe (laughs) we're good teachers uh (laughs) humans then inherit the earth back only with a lot more reduced landmass. new continents arise and america is dimly remembered as an atlantis-like mythical land jesus it's quite a long timeline on August 27, 1935, Capic wrote, Today, what should his voice be like? Uh, uh, kind of Russian, because I can't do Czechs. Did you ever see The Pervert's Guide to Ideology? Yep. The Pervert's Guide to Cinema? Yep. He's Czechish, just to him. I think he's Czechish. I hope he he's Czechish. A, Maybe Slovakian. A, oh my God, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> he had a weird, a weird like speech impediment. Oh yeah, too, yeah. Like. He's, it's really hard to understand him. Yeah. So actually, don't do him. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Today, I completed the last chapter of my utopian novel. The protagonist of this chapter is nationalism. The content is quite simple. The destruction of the world and its people. It is a disgusting chapter based solely on logic. Yet it had to end this way. What destroys us will not be a cosmic catastrophe, but mere reasons of state, economics, prestige, etc. Hmm, alright. If anybody's read that, I'd be interested to hear all about it, because that sounds like an interesting book. Is it good? Is it bad? Yep. Anybody here watch that, uh, you know, uh, TV show Red Dwarf? Oh, yeah. I have watched Red Dwarf. I think I've seen Do you remember season one, episode four? Uh, Waiting for God? Oh. Yeah. What happens in it? Lister learns the cat people's god, Cloister the Stupid, is based on him. For those who don't know, uh, let's see, let's sum this up. He's in a spaceship. He got put into suspended animation. Everybody else died. He had hidden his cat inside the spaceship. That's why he was in suspended animation mm-hmm. as punishment. Uh, like a million years later or something, he gets brought out. Uh, they turn the spaceship around to go back to Earth, which is going to take another million years. And the cat people have evolved into humanoid cat-like people, and all of them but this one have left. Who's yes. named Cat. Uh, Lister becomes depressed when he learns that the entire cat race destroyed itself in holy wars mm-hmm. over arguments regarding minor details about Foucault, 
the cat heaven, oh. which is just a misinterpretation of Lister's plans to open a hot dog and donut shop on Fiji. <laughs> So what happens was, is that they, the, this mythical place, Fiji, which yeah. they think is heaven, it's all about hot dog and donut shops, and the two factions end up in a holy war over whether or not the people who serve the hot dogs and donuts were going to wear green caps or red caps. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of a jab at absurdist, you know, uh, ideologies yeah. amongst, and, yeah. you know, organized religions. So uh, I watched the episode again because uh, mm-hmm. I I've seen a bunch of Red Dwarf, maybe sure. all of it, yeah, but quite a long time ago. Um, and now they're having a reunion. Oh yeah, they're come. They're going to do more. They're making. Why more. wouldn't they? They've got fans. In season one, episode four, the comedy was strained at best. Sure, it was a little bit hard to watch. Yeah, I never found that it had its moments, but yeah. I never found Red Dwarf to be super consistently funny. Yeah, it was, it was just an enjoyable thing to watch because it was people going, "Let's just do our own slacker yeah. science fiction show," and it'll yeah. be kind of funny. And yeah. I was like, "Yeah, finally!" When yeah, I yeah. remembered it much more fondly than I remember it now. Mm. I appreciate it. But mm-hmm. I don't own the DVD set. <laughs> I did, but the uh, to me, honestly, it's the early stuff is quite good. Like it might not be as funny, but it's like, look what they did, and it's done. It kind of bothers me that they keep going because right. it's just doing the same kind of thing. And uh, they're not bad, but uh, yeah, it's not yeah. great either. No. I watched this movie yeah. from 2009 from Norway okay. called Dead Snow. Oh, I've heard of this one. This is Nazi Zombies. This is Nazi Zombies. Yeah. I had watched... Okay, here's... They've a- got some really great promotional art. Do they? Yeah, yeah. Like, the, all the posters and stuff like that. Like, there's, like, zombie heads, like, in a, in a um, you know, snowbank. And then there's, like, all these Nazi zombies. Like, the promotional art is, I thought, quite good. Well, everyone likes na- <laughs> Nazis, right? Everyone loves Nazis. Nazis look good. They've got uh, striking, well-designed uniforms. Well, yeah. and who designed their uniforms? Who knows? Hugo Boss. Hugo Boss. Yeah. So, of course. That is true. Uh, and everyone loves zombies. Mm-hmm. So, the film centers on a group of students vacationing at a cabin in the woods in the mountains during World War II. Of course, because every horror movie starts with a bunch of kids in a cabin in the woods. What the hell are kids vacationing in a cabin in the woods in the middle of World War II anyway? No, it's not. That they were vacationing during World War II. Uh, But during World War II, a force of Nazi death squads occupied the area where they abused and tortured the local people. Near the end of the war, with Germany's defeat looming, these soldiers looted all the town's valuables. Uh, However, the citizens rose up against them and chased the Nazis into the mountains. So back to present day, one of the students finds a box filled with golds and valuables. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, Nazi gold. Nazi gold. And then Nazis rise up. Oh, because, it, because uh, wait, wait, like the gold has some sort of like magical hold yeah. over them? So like- the premise of the film is similar to that of the Draugr, which is a Scandinavian folkloric undead greedily protecting its often stolen treasures. Mm. Oh, so like they, they don't get bit by zombies and that's how they become zombies. They come back to protect their Nazi gold. Yes. Mm. Oh, interesting. So it's a little more magical. Yeah. Well, and these okay. are not like the brain zombies. They're not slow moving. They're like regular they're moving. like 28 days later zombies. They're not like crazy, crazy. They're right. just undead Nazi soldiers. And I kind of wish that there was more, like really, they don't do anything especially Nazi-ish. Right. They're just wearing the Nazi uniform. Okay. But they do do things zombie-ish. But they do do zombie-ish things. Right, okay. I watched this movie a long time ago and didn't get like, I probably got like maybe halfway through it. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't really into it. Okay. But then I watched the second half preparing for this episode and I kind of got more into it. Okay. okay. It was, it's... 
production values are fine. Yeah. Um, I actually watched the second half without subtitles, so it was oh. all in Swedish, but there wasn't much talking in the second half of the movie anyway. It Why was, did you choose to wear, watch without subtitles? I couldn't get it to work on my Xbox, okay. a little subtitle file. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so I said, well... It'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> and it was. Hey, once I'm not understanding what they're saying, this movie's better. Once the guy is, like, using a zombie's uh, intestines to, like, rappel down a cliffside or whatever, you know, there's not much you're going to say about that. Yeah. Uh, that happened in the first Machete movie, too, which was pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. Yeah. It was fun. It was mm. a fun, gory uh, and it didn't have a happy ending, which I uh, enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. got yeah. it, got it. So, sure, not a great movie, but I would recommend it. Okay. Hmm. Well. I wish. I just wish there was more frog marching. I wish there was more military, because these these Nazi guys were just basically dudes who couldn't even fight very well. Yeah. Right. With wearing Nazi okay, uniforms. Okay, so you right. needed to watch what I watched, which was Iron Sky. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, Iron Sky is a 2012 Finnish Austrian German comic science fiction action film, and it's true they tried to do all of those things. Right. And I don't that think sounds any... like maybe they tried too many things. They, they did. Uh, which tells <laughs> this the story. is like one of those restaurants that's chicken ribs, pizza, Indian donuts, uh, donuts. Yeah, yeah. You know, all under one roof. It's, kind that's of. That's absolutely what the problem was. It tells the story of a group of Nazi Germans who, after having been defeated in 1945, right. Fled to the moon. Sure. Okay. In a V2 the, rocket. <laughs> the dark side of the moon. Because right. that's how we couldn't see them. Well, you know, that's a Nazi. Right. Where they build a space fleet to return in 2018 and conquer the Earth. Okay. Uh, it's not, I like the premise of this movie. The, that's the thing. There's so much about this that you hear about it and watch it and go, yes. And then when they pull it off, you go, uh, I don't know. Do you, do you actually mumble under your breath like that when I you're kinda, home alone? I was watching it, and uh, my partner was with me, and we were both going, what? No, why would you? Uh, who's this guy? Because they wanted uh-huh. to... So there's no main... It doesn't feel like there's a main protagonist okay. in it. The whole thing starts off when a couple of American astronauts are finally on the dark side of the moon, and uh, they're both in their suits. There's no setup on who they are or what kind of people they are. It's just two unnamed Americans right. who then, of course, get jumped by Nazi soldiers right. who are wearing... You know, just Nazi gas masks and outfits that are supposed to be what their uh, spacesuits look like. Right, right. Which at first you go, what? And then later I was like, no, okay, that's fine. They yep. built their spacesuits to look like that. That's cool. Sure, I, it works for me. It's fine. There's so much ridiculous don't worry about it in this because they're on the right. moon. It never seems low gravity. Anyway, one of those astronauts survives, turns out to be a black man, which mm. freaks them all out. They've never right. seen it before. They use an albinizer on him oh, God. to turn him white. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. You've already got a movie with Nazis attacking from the moon. Why would you add in this ridiculous plot? Right. And try to turn him white and brainwash him uh-huh. so that he can come back to Earth to join in the... Yes, uh... <sighs> anyway. So... The technology looks fantastic. The yep. the fleets look great. The costumes are fantastic. I think everybody does with the script about as well as they could. They chew the scenery the right, right way, but the script mm-hmm. is just terrible. It's It doesn't have good pacing. It doesn't have a good through line of a main protagonist. And it just jumps all over the place with whatever gimmick they think they could do. Right. So I, like I give it a three or four out of five, right? I didn't hate it, but it's not good. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, again, I like the premise, but when it first came out, I remember thinking, uh, enjoying the premise, then reading about it and having basically everybody say the same thing. It's like, great idea. Yeah. You know, even well executed. In places, really well executed. But but yeah, still not a good movie. No. No. 
But Torn, do you think now on the criteria that you laid out for but your movie, but certainly the Nazis like... are Nazi-like for sure, right? All right, would that have been enough for you? Can we get Nazi zombies on the moon? Oh, Can we mash those up. They don't need to be there. Yeah, right. That's good. Undead. Yeah, yeah. They should have like you know have a, a little <sighs> Nazi zombie unit. Less shambling, more floating. That's what it should have been. Yeah. They should have been in their V two rocket, running out of oxygen. Their mad scientist says, "We have only one way to survive this, and it involves not surviving." And then he turns everybody into zombies so that they can live on the moon without spacesuits. Yeah, like we got to do our Iron Sky competitor. Dead Sky. Yeah. Iron Die. Oh, even better. But then Germans would be confused because... Oh, that's a D. The, the in the Iron Sky. The <laughs> yeah. what? The what? Iron the... I'm so confused. Michael Moore's only non-documentary film, oh, Canadian yeah. Bacon from 1995. Canadian Bacon. Yeah. Things With John like, Candy. John Candy is an American... I think he's a sheriff or something, and they decide they're going to, uh, you know, invade Canada. Yeah, he's an American sheriff. Uh, yeah, the, uh, things are looking bad for the U.S. president, but in an effort to increase his ratings, played by Alan Alda, right, he starts a new cold war with those pesky, polite folk north of the border because they don't have any other enemies to like distract. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they, uh, the the best scene in this movie, without a shadow of a doubt, is when the okay. um, the CIA guy is trying to convince the president that. Canada is the next big enemy right. that we have to like take on. Right. And Alan Alda's like, Canada's never done anything to us. What are you talking about? And he goes, 90% of their population is amassed along the border. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got like, you know, he's got a couple of other things, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The last one, he's like, and they don't have any black people, right? <laughs> and Alan Alda goes, he goes, yeah, how did they do that? He goes, <laughs> he goes, no slavery. Sly bastards. <laughs> that is by far and away the best scene in the entire film. I kind of like the part where all the, the everybody, all the Canadians are trying to be nice all the time and they're mm-hmm. bringing John Candy back and he's like, all I said was Canadian beer sucked. And then somebody like punches him in the face and the fight starts. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that's the one thing apparently that you can get us to fight over. But it's pretty obvious from this movie that why Michael Moore didn't keep going down the scripted road because oh. he is not as good at it as he is at documentaries. I have friends who love this movie, but I think it's because they're Canadians and yes. see it as a national treasure or something. I'm I, sure the reason that it was not, the chief reason it was not a success, because, uh, you know, he oh, it's had a success. Some, uh, it was not a, like, blockbuster success. Oh, sorry, I was reading that wrong. I'm missing three zeros. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was 178 million. It's 178,000. Yes. Wow. It was totally not a success. No. It was a cost di- 11 million, made 178,000. Because I think what the problem is, is that Michael Moore's jokes were all funny to Canadians yeah. and not funny to Americans because they don't understand the reason that 90% of our population is amassed along the border between Canada and the US is because that's where it's the warmest. Yep. We're trying to run away from the cold. Yep. And so Canadians will find that funny, but you need to actually know that as a fact <laughs> in order to find that funny, right? Yeah. So he kind of wrote this movie for Canada. He should have done it with the partnered up with the CBC, right? And done it on mm. like a real skin type right. budget and then it would have yeah. been like, you know, it you know, been a the greatest TV movie of all time. <laughs> that's right. Because as you know, as a person in the Canadian film industry, mm-hmm. you can't make money selling to Canadians. No, you cannot. Uh, Wag the Dog, 1997's movie about an American president seeking re-election and caught, gets caught in a sex scandal. Oh. To divert attention from his sex scandal, they get a Hollywood producer to fake a war right. for the president to win and increase his approval ratings. This movie sounded interesting to me, but I have not seen it. 
Robert De Niro plays the CIA guy, the handler, or the the White House guy, the handler, who is like, uh, you know, kind of pushing it forward on behalf of the president's team. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dustin Hoffman plays the movie producer that they bring on. And uh, the best line from this movie is, you know, if I'm going to make a fake war, I'm going to make it a hit. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, because like De Niro's just kind of like, keep it simple. Don't complicate. He's like, fuck that. Like Dustin Hoffman's like completely going over the top. Right. And then when it's like this smash success, Hoffman starts talking about how he's going to, you know, he's like, this is great. This is my greatest work. I can't wait to tell everybody. (laughs) Joe's like, you can't tell anybody about this. He's like, what? Why did I do it then? You know, like. And then, so they have to like uh, take him out. He disappears. Oh, in the, end of the movie. All right. Uh, yeah, spoiler it's, alert. It's 1997. I know. It's a. It's a really good movie. It's I agree. really clever. Really subversive. This is an excellent film. Well acted. Like, I, mean, I mean, De Niro and Hoffman yeah. at the at the height of their powers. Like this is in the 90s. It's fantastic. Like mm-hmm. people should run out and see this for sure. Wang the dog. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that your Dustin Hoffman? Yeah. Wasn't it? Can I hear it again? Wag the dog. <laughs> now say, now say, uh, Wapner's on at three. Yeah, I definitely gotta see Wapner. Yeah. These aren't my underwear. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside, and when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling, an ominous feeling, a feeling you know that we'll be back when the week is new. And we'll have more gross facts for you. And you'll have things you want to hear about. We will too. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while struggling in a crocodile death roll. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And now, a dramatic reading of Caustic Soda Viewer Mail by Eric Fell as Brian Blessed. Hi! My name is Joe, and I'm the smartest guy in the whole world! I know everything about everything ever! I'm super enlightened and worldly and perfectly politically correct! I have a lot of opinions, and if you disagree with one of them even slightly, you're wrong and stupid! Nothing anyone else says about anything is valid ever! Unless I said it or thought it first! Ha ha ha! Did I mention one of my friends is a doctor? Because one of my friends is totally a doctor! Also, I totally do sex stuff to girls! Like, all the time! So many girls! Seriously, I promise! Sex! Sex! Really sex! Sincerely, the weakest link in the podcast by far, Joe Fogam. P.S. Sex! I've had sex before! Sex! 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 I really can't stress that enough! Sex! I do sex! I'm sexy sex sex all the sex time! Sex! Sex! Ha 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 Sex!
It is true that the bravery of Asante is no more. Is it? It's a question. I've said that wrong. Do you want to start this over Start the whole thing.